Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It is well known that the man whom it delighteth the people to honor keeps and for many years has kept as his concubine one of his slaves. Her name is Sally. The name of her eldest son is Tom. His features are said to bear a striking, though sable, resemblance to those of the president himself. The boy is ten or twelve years of age. His mother went to France in the same vessel with Mr. Jefferson and his two daughters. The delicacy of this arrangement must strike every person of common sensibility. What a sublime pattern for an American ambassador to place before the eyes of two young ladies. We all know that some things may be overlooked, which can hardly be excused, and which it is impracticable either to praise or even to vindicate. Such is human nature, and such is human life. One of our correspondents very justly observes that, quote, there is nobody of whom something disagreeable may not be said. By this wench, Sally, our president, has had several children. Behold the favourite, the first born of republicanism, the pinnacle of all that is good and great, in the open consummation of an act which tends to subvert the policy, the happiness, and even the existence of this country. Tis supposed that, at a time when Mr. Jefferson wrote so smartly concerning Negroes, when he endeavoured so much to belittle the African race, he had no expectation that the chief magistrate of the United States was to be the ringleader in showing that his opinion was erroneous, or that he should choose an African stock, whereupon he was to engraft his own descendants. James Callender, writing in the Richmond Recorder, 1st of September, 1802. Hello and welcome to The Other Half, episode 5.14, Sally Hemmings, Keeping It in the Family. Last time we completed the story of Madame de Pompadour, one of history's most famous mistresses. She rose the top at Versailles, one of the most opulent power centres in world history, and dominated politics for many years through her skill and use of her relationship with Louis XV. Renette is in many ways the platonic ideal of the mistress. When we conjure the idea of a ruler's mistress, we think of kings, palaces, and court intrigue. But, as we've seen throughout this season, they are not all like that throughout time and across the world. Each of the women I am covering in this season represents a different country, a different place, where they were the lover of the ruler. 
I've tried to ensure a geographical spread, and that will continue to be the case. But since most of you, my loyal listeners, are based in the United States, I was keen that there be an American mistress. To fit the rules of the season, this had to be the mistress of a president. They are the head of state, after all. And there are quite a few options to choose from. White House residents, after all, are no less sexually motivated than kings or emperors. There are options from the early 20th century, such as Nan Britton and Lucy Rutherford. And of course, there's the litany of women that JFK slept with, not to mention Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. But, to me, the most interesting case comes from the early years of the American Republic, the mistress of one of its founding fathers. One could argue, the founding father. Thomas Jefferson was a man who was very aware of his place in history. Author of the Declaration of Independence, first ever Secretary of State, second Vice President and third President, he helped found that nation and has been held as a kind of civic deity. For many, to question Thomas Jefferson is to question the very foundations of the United States. He truly is one of history's capital G great men. But like so many of them, he had secrets and he had flaws. And none more so than his embroilment in what Lord John Marbury calls America's original sin. Slavery. Jefferson is the man who wrote in the founding document of his nation that, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Created equal. Life. Liberty. Happiness. And yet, back at his home of Monticello in Virginia, he owned over 100 enslaved men, women, and children. Among them, Sally Hemings. He bought them. He sold them. He split husbands from wives, parents from children. And he did so knowing it was wrong. In his book, Notes on Virginia, written in 1785, he wrote, quote, There must doubtly be an unhappy influence on the manners of our people produced by the existence of slavery among us. The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. With what execration should the statesman be loaded, who, permitting one half the citizens thus to trample on the rights of the other, transforms those into despots and these into enemies, destroys the morals of the one part and the amor patriae of the other? For if a slave can have a country in this world, it must be any other in preference to that in which he is born to live and labour for another, in which he must lock up the faculties of his nature contribute as far as depends on his individual endeavours to the envanishment of the human race, or entail his own miserable condition on the endless generations proceeding from him. But despite holding these views, he continued to be an enslaver until his death, and his estate continued to own enslaved people long after he went to meet his maker. Privately, he often condemned it, but publicly he did little of consequence. I don't say this to pass moral judgment. This is an exercise in history, not ethics. 
you don't need me to tell you that slavery is wrong, one of the great stains on the past and indeed present of humanity. But I bring this up because it cuts the very heart of the man who is intrinsic to this story, a man whose very name embodies an idea of liberty, and yet one who was corrupted by the institution of slavery, that is, its very opposite. The story of Jefferson's private life has been contested while he was alive and ever since. During his lifetime, rumours were spread of him having children with Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman he owned on his estate, by the journalist James Callender. I read a portion of his article at the start of the episode. But for nearly two centuries, the consensus was that this wasn't true. When Sally Hemings' son Madison claimed to be the scion of the nation's third president, he was not believed. When the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation bought Monticello and opened it to the public in 1923, they were very clear that he did not have sexual contact with the women he enslaved, nor did he have children with them. But by the 1990s, this was being seriously challenged by historians like Annette Gordon-Reed and by descendants of the enslaved people of Monticello. In 1998, a DNA test proved that Sally Hemings' youngest son was fathered by a Jefferson. The weight of this evidence led the Jefferson Memorial Foundation to change its stance in 2002, and today Monticello is very open about the topic. This has not been, though, without controversy. The Thomas Jefferson Heritage Society was founded in express opposition to this new consensus and a quick search on Amazon will turn up no shortage of authors railing against the wokeism, the political correctness gone madness scandal of these historians that besmirch the name of the great Thomas Jefferson. Now, it is true that it is impossible to say with 100% certainty that Thomas Jefferson slept with Sammy Hemings and fathered her children, but there is certainly a overwhelming weight of written, oral, and indeed biological evidence to support the consensus that he did. Not to mention the work of historians who have spent far longer investigating this topic than I. Since I announced that I would be covering Sally Hemings on social media, a few listeners have gotten in touch to question whether this was an appropriate topic. Whether an enslaved woman forced into a sexual relationship against her will could be counted in the same bracket alongside aristocratic women who used their wiles to sleep with kings for personal advantage. In short, can Sally Hemings, or women like her, be considered a mistress? It's a perfectly valid question, to which my answer is yes. Indeed, Sally Hemings isn't the first enslaved woman I've covered in this season. Being a mistress, both in history and, sadly, in our world right now as well, does not always involve consent. It often involved a degree of patriarchal exploitation. The story of Sally Hemings shows the extreme edge of that coin. And now, after that lengthy introduction, we can start the story. But before we do so, I would like to thank all of my amazing supporters on Patreon that keep the show going. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back.
As I said in the introduction, Sally Hemings is not the first enslaved mistress of this series. Near the start of the season, we talked about Roxolana, a girl from the Balkans who was sold into bondage and ended up in the Sultan's harem. Hers was sexual slavery, and was one on which an entire dynastic system was built. Ottoman society in her time, and for centuries onward, depended on slavery. The same is true across the Atlantic in the early United States, though its slavery took on its own distinct flavour. This was a system built on degradation, violence and exploitation, where people were held as property, where their very humanity was denied, and their rights held down by physical and psychological force. And all of this was sanctioned by the state and the church. Some of those enforcing their rules thought this was wrong. Most didn't. But few made any real attempt to bring about change. If you sexually assaulted an enslaved woman, you committed a crime against the owner, not the victim. And if it was the owner that did it, well, that was their right. Enslaved people could be bought and sold just like any commodity. They could be gifted as presents used to settle debt. You didn't qualm about splitting the offspring of your farm animals. Why worry about the children of your enslaved humans? Again, I say this not to virtue signal, but to accurately paint the bleak picture of what life was like for Sally Hemings and her family and people like her. There's no romanticism here. This is not a pleasant story. Perhaps unsurprisingly, we don't have a full picture of Sally's life. Enslaved people didn't leave much of a written record, but we do have a family oral history passed through the generations. The story starts somewhere you might not expect, far from the hot, sticky fields of Virginia in rainy old England. John Wales was born in Lancashire in 1715 and emigrated to the United States in his teens, looking to seek his fortune. After trying his hand at a few careers, he set up shop as a slave trader in Virginia. One of the legion of enslaved men and women that he owned in this time was Elizabeth Hemmings, also known as Betty. She was mixed race, the daughter of a black woman recently transported from Africa, and a white English whaler called Captain Hemmings. Being the daughter of a free man and a woman in bondage came with certain complications especially as her father didn't even own her. The story goes that Captain Hemmings tried to buy his own daughter, but Wales refused. Apparently, he was sociologically curious about how this mixed-race child would turn out. This led Hemmings to try and take her by force, but when he failed, he just sort of slinked off, never to play a role in his daughter's life again. John Wales became extremely wealthy, becoming a significant figure in Williamsburg society. Though his lower-class background did lead to him being considered a figure of fun to the upper-crust families of Virginia, Betty was placed as an enslaved domestic servant at one of his plantations, where she would go on to have 12 children. The first six 
were fathered to an enslaved man, and the final six were the offspring of their master, the youngest of which was a daughter called Sarah, but everyone called her Sally. When Wales died, he passed his property, which of course included his enslaved humans, to his daughters. Betty was given to Martha Wales, who, a year before, had married her third cousin, a tall, intelligent redhead lawyer from Shadwell, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. Theirs was a reasonably typical marriage for the time, built on a division of responsibilities and female subservience. Jefferson prided himself on being a moderate man who treated his wife well and kept his temper in check, but in return he expected Martha to know her place and dedicate her life to pleasing him. This lack of control led her to be very domineering with the household staff, especially the enslaved ones. This is despite, of course, a number of them being her half-siblings. In her book, The Women Jefferson Loved, Virginia Scharf compares trying to parse these kind of entangled kin relationships between free whites and their enslaved children and half-siblings in this period as being like, quote, trying to eat spaghetti with a knife. The white members of this extended family practiced denial so deep that it became second nature. The black members had to pretend that they saw and knew only what the whites wanted them to see and know, while among themselves they kept alive the larger story. The strangeness and silencing of southern interracial kinship was so pervasive and so weighty a legacy that six children and their mother could disappear inside it, not for days or years, but for decades and centuries. The Hemmings were shuffled around various residences before finally being dispatched to the new home Jefferson was building on top of a small mountain near Charlottesville, Monticello. This was the culmination of years of dreaming for Jefferson. A mansion sitting high above the various farms on which toiled the men and women he enslaved. Separated from it, but of course it was still home to its own cadre of enslaved staff itself. As a side note, building Monticello was no mean feat. It required an army of enslaved workers, hired from other plantations, to flatten the top of a mountain, using nothing more than pickaxes and shovels. It was monumental, back-breaking labour, carried out in the oppressive heat of the summer and through the ice and snow of winter. The next few years would see the Hemmings family work in what was a perpetual construction site, all the inconvenience, hardship and discomfort that that entails multiplied many times over by their circumstances. Sally's brothers had some limited freedoms. They could go outside the home, hire themselves out to other plantations' owners, and even keep their wages. She, however, and her sisters were tied to Monticello, and later the governor's mansion when Jefferson became governor of Virginia. Due to their kinship with his wife, the Hemings women were treated as a special case. For example, they were excused from doing any field work, even during the harvest when the household staff were usually ordered to pitch in. Instead, they focused on the domestic tasks of cooking, mending clothes, looking after children, that sort of thing. Jefferson even brought them gifts from his foreign travels, 
meaning that the Hemings family were dressed in Irish linen and muslin, while the other enslaved women wore cheap uniforms. Sally's sister, Betty Brown, was Martha's maid, while her brother, Martin, became the butler of Monticello. Other members of her family filled other senior roles in the household staff. They existed then in a category that was above their fellows on the plantation, with certain privileges and luxuries they did not have. But, make no mistake about it, they were still enslaved. Jefferson liked to tell himself that his treatment of the Hemings family made him an exemplary master. But an enslaver he was, and enslaved the Hemings still were. Sally would not have understood or known much of the Revolutionary War that raged in her youth. That is, until its dying days in 1781, when British forces attacked Virginia. Many of her siblings were left behind in the governor's mansion in Richmond when the Redcoats took the city and sacked it. And then she may have been at Monticello when it was itself captured by British cavalrymen. They, though, largely left the house and plantation intact, a mercy not bestowed on one of Jefferson's other plantations, Elk Hill, which was burned and many of its enslaved workers carried off, most of whom would never return. Outside of this terrifying ordeal, Sally's focus would have been far smaller, seeing the Jefferson family grow, with six children being born, though only two would reach adulthood. Martha was not a healthy woman, with her frequent pregnancies, concern for her husband's safety during the war, and bouts of illness taking their toll. She gave birth to her and Thomas's sixth child in May 1782, a reportedly very large baby called Lucy. But the ordeal was finally too much for her. She remained bedridden for the next four months, her health steadily deteriorating. Betty and Sally Hemings were among those who cared for the dying Martha. Sensing that the end was nigh, Martha summoned Thomas, her eldest surviving daughters, Patsy and Polly, her sisters and other relatives, both white and enslaved, including Betty Hemings, Sally's mother. A later overseer of Monticello, Eben Bacon, later related what happened, the story preserved and told to him by the enslaved people of Monticello. Quote, Mr. Jefferson sat by her, and she gave him directions about a good many things that she wanted done. When she came to the children, she wept and could not speak for some time. Finally, she held up her hand, and spreading out her four fingers, she told him she could not die happy if she thought her children were ever to have a stepmother brought in over them. Holding her other hand in his, Mr. Jefferson promised her solemnly that he would never marry again. Thomas Jefferson was inconsolable at his wife's death. Even decades later, his daughter Patsy wrote that the depths and violence of his grief were too awful for her to describe. He would keep his word to his wife. He would never remarry. But that didn't mean he would remain celibate. Two years after his wife's death, with the war over and the United States established as a new and independent nation, Thomas Jefferson was offered a job. 
This was not unusual. Despite his term of Governor of Virginia hardly being considered a roaring success, his status as a hero of the Revolution made him much in demand. This time, he was appointed to a diplomatic mission to Europe, alongside John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, to negotiate treaties of friendship and trade. He left Monticello in the hands of a friend, who was given strict instructions that the Hemings women maintain their special status. Most of them no longer had explicit duties now that Martha had died, and there was no longer a woman of the house to serve. Betty would remain there, but Sally, aged now around ten, was taken from her mother. Jefferson had brought his eldest daughter, Patsy, with him to France, but left his two youngest daughters, Polly and Lucy, in the care of their aunt and uncle, Francis and Elizabeth Epsis. Young Sally was sent to be Polly's maid. Unlike her brothers and sisters, who were used to being sent all over Virginia, this was one of the first times she had left Monticello, and certainly the first time she had been separated from her mother. The Epsis home of Eppington was a far smaller and less grand abode than Monticello. Sally would likely have either slept in the room of her young mistress, who, let's remember, thanks to the tangled Wales, Hemmings, Jefferson family tree, was also her half-niece, or perhaps she slept with fellow enslaved workers in the household. Disease was rampant at Eppington, with all of the Jefferson and Epsis children, and likely Sally as well, contracting whooping cough. Though Polly would survive, her sister Lucy did not. Elizabeth Epsis wrote to Jefferson, quote, It is impossible to paint the anguish of my heart on this melancholy occasion. Your dear angel was confined a week to her bed. Her sufferings were great, though nothing like a fit. She retained her senses perfectly, called me a few moments before she died and asked distinctly for water. Dear Polly has had it most violently, though always kept about, and is now quite recovered. Life is scarcely supportable under such conditions. The Jefferson children may have been away from their father, but they were in the bosom of a loving aunt and uncle during this terrible, terrifying time. Sally had no such comfort. She was a child, away from her family, forced to work in a household right with disease and care for her sick relations, possibly while sick herself. It took nearly seven months for news of this tragedy to reach Jefferson, who, by now, had been appointed as the new American ambassador to France. He made the decision to bring Polly across the Atlantic to join him. This was no small task. First of all, the glacial pace of transatlantic mail made arrangements extremely slow and arduous to make. Second, there was the small matter of finding a ship and a companion to take her over the ocean. And third was the problem that Polly vehemently didn't want to go. She was just six years old and had already lost her mother, been uprooted from her home, and now had lost her baby sister. She had grown extremely close with her aunt and uncle, who had showered far more love and attention on her than her father ever had. Indeed, it's notable that Jefferson did not write one letter to her while he was away. By the time she was seven, she could write well enough to give her father a piece of her mind. She was short and to the point. Quote, Dear Papa, I want to see you and Sister Patsy, 
but you must come to Uncle Epsis' house. Polly Jefferson. Elizabeth Epsis didn't want her niece to go either. Transatlantic travel in those days was a risky business. Quite apart from the discomfort and risk of bad weather, there was also the small matter of Algerian pirates who were menacing American shipping. But Thomas Jefferson was her father, her legal guardian, and he insisted his daughter join him. Now, a girl of that age would need a chaperone, and Jefferson made several suggestions. He wrote to the Epsis, quote, Some good lady passing from America to France, or even England, would be most eligible. But a careful gentleman would do. In this case, some woman who has had the smallpox must attend to her. A careful Negro woman, as Isabel, for example, if she has had the smallpox, would suffice under the patronage of a gentleman. The woman need not come farther than Havre, Lorient, or Nantes, or whatever port she should land at, because I could go there for the child myself, and the person could return to Virginia directly. The Isabel mentioned here was a 26-year-old enslaved woman at Monticello, but she would not, in the end, make the trip. Apart from anything else, she had just fallen pregnant. Many other men and women were considered for this dubious honour, but eventually the job was assigned to the now 14-year-old Sally Hemmings. Now, she is a rather curious choice to accompany the unwilling and traumatised Polly Jefferson. She was very young, had not been inoculated against smallpox, and had never before left Virginia, let alone the United States. But she had known Polly all of her life, and had spent the last couple of years serving her as her maid. She was used to her tantrums and tribulations, and, as an enslaved girl, she had no choice but to manage them. Polly liked Sally, they were related after all, and she seemed to be one of the few people that could keep her calm. Those were the nice reasons, but there were also reasons of self-interest. Once Polly had gone, the Epsis had no real use for Sally. She couldn't be sent out into the fields, and if she remained in the house as a maid, she posed a somewhat different sort of risk. Virginia Scharf speculates in her book that Elizabeth Epsis, who, let's remember, had seen her father force a sexual relationship on Sally's mother, may have been concerned that her own son may be tempted to follow in the family tradition. What did Sally think of this? Well, it'll shock you to hear that we have no idea because no one bothered to note it down. Likely, no one bothered to ask her. She had no choice in the matter. She would be travelling to a strange, foreign land, far away from most of her family. But it's possible she may have been a little bit excited about the prospect. Her brother, James, was there in Jefferson's household, and this was the sort of opportunity not afforded to most enslaved people. That said, this would be a perilous journey for Sally. While Polly was under the captain's watchful eye and protection, Sally was not. 17th century sailors were not known for their gentlemanly manners, and enslaved girls were often considered fair game. Even if she made it through the journey to Europe unmolested, and she might have had a measure of protection while with Polly, she would have to make the return journey alone. And that's just the risk from the ship's crew and passengers. If the ship were attacked by pirates, she had no ransom value. 
and would likely suffer an extremely nasty fate. So though she didn't exactly have much of a choice, don't underestimate how much courage it must have taken to get on board that ship. To be fair, Polly Jefferson also didn't have a say in the matter. Indeed, she had to be tricked onto getting onto the ship, and by the time she had realised the deception, it had already begun its voyage. We don't have any records of what happened on the journey, but it was a defining moment in Sally's life. An overseer at Monticello noted that many decades later, Sally would talk about the journey often with those around her. I can't imagine it was a particularly pleasant time. Polly would likely not have taken kindly to the deception, and Sally probably would not have had commodious accommodation or plentiful rations on board. After five weeks at sea, on the 26th of June, 1787, the ship docked in London, where the two girls were greeted by Abigail Adams, the wife of the then American ambassador to the UK and future US president, John Adams. She wrote to Jefferson that, quote, The old nurse that you had expected to have attended Polly was sick and unable to come. She had a girl, about 15 or 16, with her. The fact that she got Sally's age wrong is interesting for two reasons. Firstly, it perhaps confirms that Sally had good looks that belied her years. And second, it shows that Abigail Adams didn't go to the trouble of asking her. Adams later wrote to Jefferson, quote, The girl who is with her is quite a child, and Captain Ramsay is of the opinion that she will be of so little service that he had better carry her back with him. But of this you will be a judge. She seems fond of the child and appears good-natured. She wants more care than the child, is wholly incapable of looking properly after her without some superior to direct her. It's possible that her confusion over Sally's age may account for these comments about her supposed immaturity, but in suggesting that she required more care than her nine-year-old charge, perhaps says more about Abigail Adams' prejudices than it does about Sally's own qualities. Certainly, given Polly Jefferson's well-documented behavioural problems and mental health struggles, I find it hard to imagine she was more mature than Sally, even with her superior education. Polly's mood was not improved by the fact that her father didn't make the trip across the Channel to bring her to Paris. Instead, he sent his French maître d'hôtel, a man called Adrien Petit. She fell into her trademark ranges, and getting her to continue her journey was no easy task. Now, the original plan had been for Sally to return to America, and we're not quite sure why she didn't. It certainly wasn't out of any concern for her welfare. Both Abigail Adams and Captain Ramsay wrote to Jefferson many times expressing their view that Sally offered no value as a maid or companion for Polly. Some have suggested that Sally's beauty was a motivating for both of them. Adams may have worried about sending the attractive enslaved woman to her bachelor enslaver, while Ramsay may have had sinister ulterior motives for wanting her under his charge on the long voyage back across the Atlantic. One person who did want Sally to come along was Polly, who seems to have, perhaps understandably, developed real abandonment issues. Having never been able to truly settle anywhere in her life, 
she clung to any stabilising force she could. Sally was the one constant in her life, and she didn't want to lose her. And, for once, Polly got her way. The passports were issued, tickets purchased, and all other arrangements were made. Sally Hemings was on her way to Paris. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.